PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for July 2010. The July issue contains an editorial by Dr. Michael Landry. This month's research reports focus on energy cost of walking in older adults, muscle activation patterns during walking in children, physical activity in multiple sclerosis, facilitators and barriers to exercise in people with osteoarthritis, and competence assessment in physical therapy. This month's issue also contains two companion articles that focus on the ICF, application of the ICF in multidisciplinary patient management, and creating an interface between the ICF and physical therapist practice. These two companion articles are the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Alan Jetty and a discussion podcast. Finally, this month's perspective article focuses on ethics, knowledge, and practice in physical therapy. First this month, gait biomechanics, spatial and temporal characteristics, and the energy cost of walking in older adults with impaired mobility by David Wirt, Dr. Jennifer Brack, Dr. Subhashan Pereira, and Dr. Jesse Van Swearingen. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Abnormalities of gait and changes in posture during walking are more common in older adults than in young adults and may contribute to an increase in the energy expended for walking. The objective of this study was to examine the contributions of abnormalities of gait biomechanics and gait characteristics to the energy cost of walking in older adults with impaired mobility. A cross-sectional design was used. Gait speed, step width, stance time, and cadence were derived during walking on an instrumented walkway. Trunk flexion, hip extension, and foot floor angle at heel contact were assessed during overground walking. The energy cost of walking was determined from oxygen consumption data collected during treadmill walking. All measurements were collected at the participants' usual self-selected walking speed. 50 community-dwelling older adults with slow and variable gait participated. Hip extension, trunk flexion, and step width were factors related to the energy cost of walking. Hip extension, step width, and cadence were the only gait measures beyond age and gait speed that provided additional contributions to the variance of the energy cost. This study had the following limitation. Other factors not investigated in this study, such as interactions among variables, psychosocial factors, muscle strength, range of motion, body composition, and resting metabolic rate, may further explain the greater energy cost of walking in older adults with slow and variable gait. Closer inspection of hip extension, step width, and cadence during physical therapy gait assessments may assist physical therapists in recognizing factors that contribute to the greater energy cost of walking in older adults. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author David Wirt 
is research physical therapist and research assistant in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Next, trunk and hip muscle activation patterns are different during walking in young children with and without cerebral palsy. By Dr. Laura Prosser, Dr. Samuel Lee, Dr. Ann Van Sant, Dr. Mary Barb, and Dr. Richard Lauer. Poor control of postural muscles is a primary impairment in people with cerebral palsy. The purpose of this observational study was to investigate differences in the timing characteristics of trunk and hip muscle activity during walking in young children with cerebral palsy compared with children with typical development. 31 children, 16 children with typical development, and 15 with cerebral palsy participated in this observational study. The participants had an average of 28.5 months of walking experience. Electromyographic data were collected from 16 trunk and hip muscles as the participants walked at a self-selected pace. A custom-written computer program determined onset and offset of activity. Activation and coactivation data were analyzed for group differences. When compared with the group with typical development, the children with cerebral palsy had greater total activation and coactivation for all muscles except the external oblique muscle and differences in the timing of activation for all muscles. The implications of the observed muscle activation patterns are discussed in reference to existing postural control literature. The article discusses the following limitations. The potential influence of recording activity from adjacent deep trunk muscles, as well as the influence of the use of an assistive device by some children with cerebral palsy. Young children with cerebral palsy demonstrate excessive non-reciprocal trunk and hip muscle activation during walking compared with children with typical development. Future studies should investigate the efficacy of treatments to reduce excessive muscle activity and improve coordination of postural muscles in cerebral palsy. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary and is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Robert Wagenar. Lead author Dr. Laura Prosser is postdoctoral fellow in the Rehabilitation Medicine Department at the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Next, physical activity behavior of people with multiple sclerosis. Understanding how they can become more physically active. By Dr. Helene Beckerman, Dr. Vincent de Grote, Dr. Martin Scholten, Yiska Kempen, and Dr. Gustav Lenkhorst. People with multiple sclerosis are less physically active than those without the disease. Understanding the modifiable factors that are related to physical inactivity is important for developing effective physical activity programs. The objectives of this cross-sectional study were to determine levels of physical activity and to determine factors related to the physical activity behavior of adults with multiple sclerosis by use of the Physical Activity for People with a Disability model. This model combines the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health Framework of Disability and Theoretical Models of Physical Activity Behavior. The study participants were 106 people who had multiple sclerosis and who, since their definite diagnosis, had been participating in a prospective cohort study. The participants had a mean age of 42.8 years and they had a disease duration of 6 years. 
Physical activity was assessed with the short questionnaire to assess health-enhancing physical activity. The independent roles of disease characteristics and demographic, cognitive behavioral, and environmental factors were determined with reliable and valid questionnaires. The median total level of physical activity of participants with multiple sclerosis was 10.68 metabolic equivalents by hour per day. On average, participants spent 30 hours per week on activities with metabolic equivalents of two or more. The regression models predicting physical activity behavior on the basis of demographic and disease-related variables explained more variance than the models based on cognitive behavioral and environmental variables. Combining significant variables yielded a final regression model that explained 37% of the variance in physical activity. Significant determinants were disease severity, a disability pension, and having children to care for. One limitation of the study was that changes in physical activity behavior were not measured. Participants with multiple sclerosis were less active if their disease was more severe, if they received a disability pension, or if they had children to care for. The physical activity for people with a disability model was helpful in understanding the physical activity behavior of participants with multiple sclerosis. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Helene Beckerman is senior researcher in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at VU University Medical Center and at the MJO Institute for Health and Care Research at VU University and VU University Medical Center in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Facilitators and Barriers to Exercising Among People with Osteoarthritis, a Phenomenological Study, by Anner Petersdotter, Solveig Arnadotter, and Dr. Sigurdur Hotteldosdotter. Evidence indicates that regular exercise improves the well-being of individuals with osteoarthritis. However, these individuals seem to exercise less frequently than the general population and seem to have limited adherence to exercising. The purposes of this study were, one, to increase knowledge and understanding of the experience of exercising among individuals with osteoarthritis, and two, to determine what they perceive as facilitators and barriers to exercising. This study used a qualitative method based on the Vancouver School of Doing Phenomenology involving purposive sampling of 12 individuals and 16 interviews. The participants, nine women and three men, were 50 to 82 years of age. Extended information on exercise behavior among people with osteoarthritis is presented in a model in which internal and external facilitators and barriers to exercising are delineated. Based on this model, a checklist is proposed for physical therapists' assessment of these factors. Internal factors include individual attributes and personal experience of exercising, whereas external factors include the social and physical environment. The participants expressed how each of these internal and external factors could act both as a facilitator and a barrier to exercise participation and the pattern of exercising. For example, the presence of pain 
was an important aspect concerning internal barriers to exercising, whereas the hope of less pain was one of the main facilitators. Increased knowledge and understanding of the factors influencing exercise behavior in people with osteoarthritis can help physical therapists and other healthcare professionals support them in initiating and maintaining a healthy exercise routine and consequently achieving a better quality of life. This article has a bottom line clinical summary. Lead author Anur Petersdotter is physical therapist at Bjarg Rehabilitation Center in Akurade, Iceland. Mrs. Petersdotter was a student at the University of Akurade at the time this research was completed in partial fulfillment of the requirements for her Master of Science degree in Health Sciences. Next, psychometric properties of a peer assessment program to assess continuing competence in physical therapy by Dr. Patricia Miller, Dr. Marla Nair, and Dr. Kevin Eva. The College of Physiotherapists of Ontario implemented an on-site assessment to evaluate the continuing competence of physical therapists. This psychometric study was undertaken to examine the reliability of the various tools used in the on-site assessment and to consider the relationship between the final decision and demographic factors. 63 trained peer assessors visited 106 randomly selected physical therapists in their workplace. 53 physical therapists were examined by two assessors simultaneously. The assessment included the following, a review of practice issues, record-keeping, billing practices, the physical therapist's professional portfolio, and a chart-stimulated recall process. The Quality Management Committee made the final decision regarding the physical therapist's performance using the assessor's summary report. Generalizability theory was used to examine the inter-rater reliability of the tools. Correlation coefficients and regression analyses were used to examine the relationships between demographic factors and performance. 88% of the physical therapists completed the program successfully, whereas 11% required remediation and 1% required further assessment. The inter-rater reliability of the components was above 0.70 for two raters evaluations with the exception of billing practices. There was no relationship between the final decision and age or years since graduation. Limitations of the study include a small sample and a lack of data on system-related factors that might influence performance. The vast majority of the physical therapists met the professional standards of the College of Physiotherapists of Ontario. Reliability analysis indicated that the number of charts reviewed could be reduced. Strategies to improve the reliability of the various components must take into account feasibility issues related to financial and human resources. Further research to examine factors associated with failure to adhere to professional standards should be considered. These results can provide valuable information to regulatory agencies or managers considering similar continuing competence assessment programs. Lead author Dr. Patricia Miller is Associate Clinical Professor at the School of Rehabilitation Science and currently holds the Raymond and Margaret Labarge Postdoctoral Fellowship for Research and Knowledge Application for Optimal Aging at the School of Social Work, both at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada.
Our first article focusing on the ICF is using a case report of a patient with spinal cord injury to illustrate the application of the International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health during Multidisciplinary Patient Management by Alexandra Rauch, Dr. Ruben Escorpizo, Dr. Daniel Riddle, Dr. Inga Eriks Hoagland, Dr. Gerald Stuckey, and Dr. Alarcos Siza. Physical therapists require a comprehensive assessment of a patient's functioning status to address multiple problems in patients with severe conditions. The International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health, or ICF, is the universally accepted conceptual model for the description of functioning. Documentation tools have been developed based on ICF core sets to be used in multidisciplinary rehabilitation management and specifically by physical therapists. The purposes of this case report are, one, to apply ICF-based documentation tools to the care of a patient with spinal cord injury, and two, to illustrate the use of ICF-based documentation tools during multidisciplinary patient management. The patient was a 22-year-old man with tetraplegia at the C2 level who was five months post-injury. The report describes the integration of the ICF-based documentation tools into the patient's examination, evaluation, prognosis, diagnosis, and intervention while he participated in a multidisciplinary rehabilitation program for two months. Physical therapy-specific and multidisciplinary ICF-based documentation tools were used to illustrate the patient's comprehensive functioning status at the beginning of the program, the rehabilitation goals, the intervention plan, and his improvements in functioning following rehabilitation and the according goal achievement. This case report illustrates how the ICF-based documentation template for physical therapists summarizes all relevant information to aid the physical therapist's patient management and how ICF-based documentation tools for multidisciplinary care complement one another and thus can be used to enhance multidisciplinary patient management. In addition, the ICF assists in clarifying clinician roles as part of a multidisciplinary team. The case report demonstrates that the ICF can be a viable framework both for physical therapy and multidisciplinary management and for clinical documentation. Two e-tables accompany this article online. Lead author Alexandra Rauch is project leader at Swiss Paraplegic Research in Nantville, Switzerland. Our second article focusing on the ICF is Creating an Interface Between the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health and Physical Therapist Practice by Dr. Ruben Escorpizo, Dr. Gerald Stuckey, Dr. Alarcos Siza, Dr. Candice Davis, Terry Stembo, and Dr. Daniel Riddle. The American Physical Therapy Association has endorsed the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health, or ICF, as a framework to be integrated into physical therapist practice. The ICF is a universal and inclusive platform for the understanding of health and disability and a comprehensive classification system for describing functioning. APTA's Guide to Physical Therapist Practice was designed to guide patient management given the different settings and health conditions that physical therapists encounter in their daily clinical practice. However, physical therapists may be unclear as to how to concretely apply the ICF in their clinical practice and to translate the application in a way that is meaningful to them and to their patients. 
This perspective article proposes ways to integrate the ICF and the Guide to Physical Therapist Practice to facilitate clinical documentation by physical therapists. An e-appendix accompanies this article online. Lead author Dr. Ruben Escorpizo is research scientist in the Department of Health Sciences and Health Policy at the University of Lucerne in Lucerne, Switzerland. These two companion articles on the ICF are the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Alan Jetty and a discussion podcast. Last this month, a perspective article, Closing the Gap Between Ethics Knowledge and Practice Through Active Engagement, an Applied Model of Physical Therapy Ethics, by Dr. Claire Delaney, Dr. Ian Edwards, Dr. Gail Jensen, and Elizabeth Skinner. Physical therapist practice has a distinct focus that is holistic or patient-centered and at the same time is connected to a range of other providers within healthcare systems. Although there is a growing body of literature in physical therapy ethics knowledge, including clinical obligations and underlying philosophical principles, less is known about the unique ethical issues that physical therapists encounter and how and why they make ethical decisions. As moral agents, Physical therapists are required to make autonomous clinical and ethical decisions based on connections and relationships with their patients, other healthcare team members, and health institutions and policies. This article identifies specific ethical dimensions of physical therapist practice and highlights the development and focus of ethics knowledge in physical therapy over the last several decades. An applied ethics model called the active engagement model is proposed to integrate clinical and ethical dimensions of practice with the theoretical knowledge and literature about ethics. The active engagement model has three practical steps to listen actively, to think reflexively, and to reason critically. The model focuses on the underlying skills, attitudes, and actions that are required to build a sense of moral agency and purpose within physical therapist practice, and to decrease gaps between the ethical dimensions of physical therapist practice and physical therapy ethics knowledge and scholarship. A clinical case study is provided to illustrate how the ethics engagement model might be used to analyze and provide insight into the ethical dimensions of physical therapist practice. This article is the subject of an invited commentary by Professor E. Lynn Geddes. Lead author Dr. Claire Delaney is Senior Lecturer in the Department of Physiotherapy at the School of Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne and is Clinical Ethics Fellow at the Children's Bioethics Center at the Royal Children's Hospital, both in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.